Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is episode 78 for June 7, 2020. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. For 15 days this past May, Hamas forces based in Gaza and Israel battled in the fiercest fighting between the two since 2014. What objectives, incentives, and constraints led each side to conflict? And did either combatant achieve its goals? We have to understand that Hamas and Israel were fighting two different wars. Hamas was fighting a political war while Israel was fighting a military war. And so Hamas escalated into this round for, as we mentioned, uh, really political purposes and objectives. Uh, and Israel was countering, primarily through, through the IDF, to try to degrade Hamas capabilities and, and to restore long-term deterrence. Uh, and that was really uh, primarily military goals that have a larger strategic significance, obviously, but, but primarily military. That was Neri Zilber, who joins Grant Rumley to offer a military and political assessment of the latest round of fighting between Hamas and Israel. After this. This is Gaith Al-Omari, Senior Fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. I'm speaking today with Grant Rumley and Neri Zilber, co-authors of a recent Washington Institute report offering a military assessment of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Grant is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute, where he specializes in the military and security affairs of the Middle East. Grant, welcome. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. And Neri is a journalist and analyst on Middle East politics and culture and an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute. Neri, welcome. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks. Given the fast pace of events in the region, I should note that we're speaking on Thursday, June 3, in the morning, Eastern Time, several hours after a potential new Israeli governing coalition was announced. Grant, let's start with some context. You and Neri described the recent Israel-Hamas conflict as the worst escalation since 2014. What are the competing incentive structures that can lead Hamas or Israel to start and once started continue fighting like we have just seen? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think uh, I think I would place the the blame almost solely on Hamas for launching the the latest round of of conflict. Uh, And I think there are are several uh, sort of broader factors at play here as to as to why they chose now. And in no particular order, the first would probably be the, the cancellation of the Palestinian legislative elections that happened a few weeks prior to the latest uh, round of conflict. This would have been the first time Palestinians would have voted for uh, for parliament in, in about 15 years. Uh, and while there's been previous attempts to hold elections before, these ones, I think, uh, got a little bit got a little bit further along in terms of logistics and planning and uh, lists of candidates were being formed, and uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the, the leader of Fatah and the, and the PA in the West Bank, canceled the elections just a few weeks before uh, the latest round, and, and he blamed Israel for it, uh, and Hamas sort of followed suit and blamed Israel as well, but I, they also blamed Abbas for, for canceling it, and so I think uh, that was that was one of the big factors. That, another would be uh, Hamas itself had just gone through kind of its own internal elections. And Yahya Sinwar, the, the leader in Gaza, he, he kind of narrowly survived a challenge uh, to his re-election campaign. He, 
uh, I think much to the surprise of, of us as external observers and maybe to, to Sinwar himself, he had to go to a runoff against a, a, a candidate who wanted to unseat him. And so uh, I think he may have been, uh, you know, his, his term as leader in Gaza has not seen any uh, large conflict with Israel, uh, but it hasn't seen exactly an improvement in the, in the daily conditions for, for everyday Gazans. And so he may have been uh, feeling a little bit uncertain about uh, sort of his place within the group. And, and then I think the third, the third factor at play here is, is much broadly and simply Hamas's built up its capabilities since the last round of conflict. Um, you had Israeli officials talking uh, in, in March and parts of the spring saying, you know, that they, that Hamas had uh, its ability to build or rockets organically uh, had improved uh, that, uh, that Hamas's uh, training um, and sort of expertise um, had, had grown. And so uh, I think Israel's previous policy on Gaza, the quiet for quiet, where they, they'd allow uh, uh, cuttery cash payments to go in and reconstruction materials to go in, uh, ensured that things were quiet for a while, but it also allowed Hamas to, to use a lot of those reconstruction materials for, um, for its own military purposes. And so I think from a capability standpoint, Hamas leaders were even sort of boasting this spring that they felt uh, pretty comfortable in what they had developed. Um, so those were kind of, the, I think, you know, the three broader uh, factors at play beforehand. And then just in the direct run up, it was obviously the, the tensions in East Jerusalem, the, the potential evictions of Palestinian residents of Sheikh Jarrah, uh, which sparked uh, clashes and protests that eventually spilled over uh, onto uh, the Aqsa compound. And at one point, you know, a couple hundred Palestinians are injured in clashes. And so I think Hamas saw an opportunity with all those factors at play to uh, sort of cast itself as the defender of Jerusalem, humiliate its rivals in Mahmoud Abbas and the Fatah party, and sort of lay its claim for the mantle of the Palestinian leadership at this time. Do you think that uh, if, if, if Hamas had its own uh, ability to dictate the strategic course of a conflict, would, would it have launched a few rockets a couple of times and been done with it? Or were, was, was Hamas also... Uh, intending to mount a larger campaign of uh, daily rocket attacks against Israeli targets. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I would love to to hear Neri's thoughts on that too. I mean, I, I think in the past we have seen uh, one-off rocket attacks into Israel, usually uh, usually part of sort of a messaging within very clear uh, uh, parameters uh, between Israel and Hamas, where. Um, if certain restrictions are imposed, maybe a couple of rockets get launched into into Israel, and it sort of sends a message like, "Hey, we're still here," and uh, we we obviously disagree with uh, with some of these actions. Uh, you know, I think I think at every time when uh, rockets get launched, in there's sort of a there's sort of an escalation ladder that can get climbed, and um, both sides sort of feel out the other side in terms of. In terms of, do we want this to to escalate into a fully fledged conflict? And and this time, I think Hamas just crossed the red line. The red line being uh, launching rockets at Jerusalem. It crossed that line so early um, that I think both sides, Israel, was not willing to tolerate that. But Hamas, I think, also made the decision in targeting Jerusalem that it was seeking uh, a more more fully fledged conflict. 
Well, Neri, before we turn to the uh, Israeli uh, calculations, uh, how do you see Hamas's strategic calculations in beginning the conflict? So just to jump off where Grant ended, uh, I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, Hamas is nothing if not very uh, astute, uh, astute observers of Israeli politics. Uh, someone like Yehia Sinwar, uh, who Grant mentioned, uh, the real uh, leader of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, uh, he speaks fluent Hebrew. Uh, he was in Israeli prison for over 20 years. Uh, he follows and studies the, the Israeli scene very closely. Um, and I can tell you, as somebody who was in Jerusalem, in the old city on the roof, uh, right next to Al-Aqsa and the Western Wall on that Monday afternoon when rockets were, were fired on Jerusalem, uh, what preceded it was actually an, an ultimatum, an ultimatum that uh, wasn't really a real ultimatum. Israel had no ability or intention to fulfill the, the terms, uh, but they said at 6 p.m. local time, we're going to fire on Jerusalem. So it wasn't like this was an accident or uh, a miscalculation. Hamas knew exactly what they were doing, uh, and they made good. A little after 6 p.m., they fired rockets on Jerusalem, and uh, I think with the full knowledge that it was going to lead to a wider escalation. Uh, Grant mentioned that there uh, had been certain parameters in previous years uh, you know, between Israel and Hamas, uh, what, what we like to call here uh, the rules of the game, uh, and they were very clear. Uh, you know, Short-range rocket fire on Israeli border communities around Gaza, and even rocket fire onto, let's say, bigger towns and cities in southern Israel uh, are one thing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, but rocket fire uh, on central Israel, on the Tel Aviv metro area or or Israel's capital in Jerusalem is quite another. And so I think escalation was uh, was inevitable. I think Hamas took it into consideration for precisely the, the reasons that Grant laid out very well, that there were political calculations on the part of Hamas, uh, whether it was uh, internal Palestinian politics vis-a-vis their competition with uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, or this uh, this defense, quote unquote, of Palestinian equities uh, in in Jerusalem and the Al Aqsa Mosque, uh, and so they they knew what they were doing. Uh, they launched this escalation for for political reasons, which we can get into in a second. Uh, but uh, you know, I wasn't surprised that it uh, that it devolved into eleven days of open warfare. Well, and then on the receiving end of those attacks, Israel faced renewed rocket attacks against Jerusalem and other more uh, central and northern targets in the midst of an ongoing and a slow-moving political crisis. How did that play into the Israeli strategic response to Hamas's rocket attack? So I'll say uh, it did and it didn't, uh, from my point of view did in the sense that Hamas and really any other observer, including myself, uh, understood very well that when rockets were fired on Jerusalem, um, any Israeli government would have had to respond forcefully. Uh, but definitely this Israeli government, this Israeli transition government, led by Benjamin Netanyahu at this current moment, um, would have definitely responded severely. Um, in other words, there was no real wiggle room uh, for Bibi Netanyahu and, and this government uh, in terms of what uh, the public expected and really what the, what the strategic context between Israel and Hamas uh, dictated as well. Uh, so the rules of the game, um, this, this arrangement, these negotiations really, indirect negotiations, but negotiations nonetheless between Israel and Hamas in recent years uh, had been making progress. 
you know, Grant mentioned the Qatari cash that was going into Gaza every month, uh, tens of millions of dollars, and further reconstruction of Gaza that was being allowed, uh, the opening with a wink and a nod by Israel of an independent border crossing between Gaza and Egypt, um, where they import uh, essentially whatever they like into the Gaza Strip. All of the, all of these things uh, had uh, had been making progress, and so the the clear parameters, these rules of the game. Uh, had been violated by Hamas uh, by firing rockets on Jerusalem. And so Israel had to respond and, and respond forcefully uh, in their minds. And this is really the objective of, of the campaign from the Israeli point of view that Grant and I touched on in, in the article, uh, was number one, to degrade those very formidable capabilities uh, that Hamas had built up, that Grant mentioned, uh, and really to hit Hamas hard enough that it would uh, restore long-term deter- deterrence uh, to avoid... Uh, you know, further rocket fire, uh, like we saw on Jerusalem that started this this round. Aside from the rocket attacks that were well covered in uh, the Western press, you note that Hamas attempted a broader offensive campaign than just the rockets, including offensive drones, special force attacks, that were, and, and these were largely unsuccessful. Why did these offensive tactics fail on Hamas's part, and, and what do they tell us about Hamas's capabilities and intentions in future conflicts? Yeah, it's a it's it's a great question. I, I think on the the Hamas sort of special forces question, uh, we saw a lot of that type of expeditionary warfare in the last round in 2014, where Hamas utilized its its sort of network of tunnels into Israel to send commandos uh, to to penetrate into Israel proper and conduct attacks on Israeli soldiers, on Israeli civilians, and those were Highly, I think, from Hamas's standpoint, uh, they were they were big symbolic wins. They sort of um, threatened the 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 quote unquote veneer of Israeli security by by being able to send fighters into Israel and conduct these attacks. And uh, for Israel, that was rightfully a, a bridge too far. And I think post 2014, there was a lot of effort uh, from the Israeli side from the Israeli side to not only uh, detect these tunnels, but defeat them as well. And so we didn't see a, a ton of that featured in this round of conflict, in large part because Israel had made such a concerted effort to make sure it wouldn't happen again. On the, on the drones uh, and, and sort of the, the, the new type of technology, the new, the new capabilities that we saw, the, the sort of uh, underwater uh, quasi-submarine type uh, explosive-laden uh, platforms going at Israeli ships or the armed drones. Uh, that's a new wrinkle, uh, but it's also one that Israel's uh, addressed in other theaters. Uh, even during this conflict, we saw uh, uh, Israel reported that a drone had come through Jordanian airspace uh, towards Israel. They thought it had been launched uh, from Syria or Iraq um, by another Iranian-aligned actor. Uh, Israel's been been sort of dealing with the uh, the UAV threat for a while now, and so uh, I I think uh, detecting and defeating Hamas's wasn't uh, wasn't as big of a challenge um, per se. But I think uh, you know a broad reflection uh, that I have here is that this to me was was sort of the first time that Hamas looked in terms of a tradecraft standpoint as as uh, a true Iranian-aligned uh, proxy, in a sense. This, this, uh, the way in which they went about launching the rockets and using the 
the armed drones and the the sort of barrage techniques uh, echoed to me previous uh, previous Iranian line attacks like uh, the 2019 uh, Saudi Aramco attack that that saw uh, you know Iranian proxies use a, crew, a combination of cruise missiles and drones to try to swarm Saudi air defense uh, and hit the hit the facilities there. It, it's an imperfect comparison, uh, but. I do think the way in which they fielded and used their their assets echoed a little bit more of the threats that Israel's faced uh, in other theaters in the region before. Neri, do Israeli military uh, and or political leaders uh, share the view that we're, we're seeing something new, not just in degree, but in kind from Hamas's uh, strategic behavior in Gaza? I don't think it took Israel by surprise. Uh, and as Grant mentioned, they had been really preparing for those kinds of special forces attacks and cross-border attacks uh, since 2014, uh, which saw a lot of successful uh, cross-border attacks into Israel by Hamas. Uh, and it seemed to catch the IDF uh, a bit a bit uh, by surprise uh, back then. So Israel had been preparing for it. Um, I think what really, uh, in terms of you know the military capabilities of Hamas, what struck Israeli military officials and, and other outside observers was really the, the scale and pace and range of the rocket barrages. So really for the first time, uh, and this isn't just Hamas, it's arguably any Israeli adversary uh, really since maybe Saddam Hussein in 1991, uh, they made a concerted effort and succeeded in targeting uh, the greater Tel Aviv area. Uh, and I can say as somebody who, uh, who was on the receiving end, of those barrages, uh, thankfully with the Iron Dome uh, defense up above us, uh, it was uh, it was real. Uh, the barrages were coming in. Uh, some did land and did cause some some damage and, and uh, unfortunately some fatalities as well uh, in central Israel. Uh, but you know, Hamas was almost calling its own shots. Uh, there was one night, I think it was a Saturday night, where the Hamas military spokesman said that between ten and twelve p.m. at night. Uh, they were, quote-unquote, lifting the curfew around Tel Aviv. Everyone could go out and, and uh, it would be fine. There would be no rocket sirens. Uh, but that after 12, uh, Tel Aviv had to, had to be prepared. And at 12.09, uh, sirens went off in Tel Aviv. And so that just uh, shows you um, both the, the audacity, but really the capability uh, of Hamas that it's been able to develop. Uh, and as Grant mentioned, they also um, kept up a rate of fire has been unseen so far. And we're not, you know, it's not just a Hamas comparison. It's also what Hezbollah uh, was able to do in the Lebanon war in 2006. And so I think, uh, Grant, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was almost 400 rockets a day on average in terms of the pace uh, during over the course of the 11 days. Uh, and that, uh, that's a lot of rockets coming in. Uh, and they also tried to overwhelm the Iron Dome system, uh, primarily around uh, Ashkelon and Ashdod in southern Israel, uh, and so there were a few moments where rockets did get through, uh, but thankfully overall the Iron Dome has also improved. And so the interception rate has, uh, has kept up around uh, 90%, uh, and that's a good thing as well. And, and just uh, to Neri's point there, looking at the numbers here, uh, yeah, there was uh, on average just shy of 400 rockets a day compared to 2014, uh, over 50 days when the average was about 90 per day. And looking at the numbers, the round before that in 2012 was about 187 per day. And then in 2008, 2009 was just 29 per day. So uh, obviously having nearly 400 a day uh, is a rate of fire unprecedented. 
Having discussed the uh, strategic objectives of each side in the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, how would you assess the extent to which either side achieved its strategic goals uh, in the 11 days of, of conflict last month? We have to understand that Hamas and Israel were fighting two different wars. Hamas was fighting a political war while Israel was fighting a military war. And so Hamas escalated into this round for, as we mentioned, uh, really political purposes and objectives. Uh, and Israel was countering primarily through through the IDF to try to degrade Hamas capabilities and, and to restore long-term deterrence. Uh, and that was really uh, primarily military goals um, that have a larger strategic significance, obviously, but, but primarily military. So how do you assess who achieved those objectives? I think, I think it's too soon to tell. That might sound like a cop-out, but it remains to be seen, you know, from Hamas's point of view, whether the popularity uh, that they gained over the past month, uh, you know, definitely in Jerusalem, uh, in the West Bank, even to certain respects uh, inside Israel proper amongst uh, uh, Arab Israelis, uh, whether that's sustained uh, and whether the level of tension and and degree of Hamas's more kind of combative and resistance ethos is, stays with us in the coming weeks and months, and whether Hamas, at least politically in terms of its rivalry with, with the PA and Fatah, uh, translates that into, into greater support. So it remains to be seen. And for Israel, I think the, the too soon to tell angle is we just don't know whether Hamas is deterred. Uh, I don't think their military military capabilities took took a massive hit. I think even IDF officers will, will admit it. Hamas is still capable of, of firing those rockets and, and waging war, although they undoubtedly did take a hit. Uh, but does that mean that they'll recuse themselves or uh, refrain from doing that in future? Uh, I'm not too convinced. And and Grant, where does your scorecard stand? Uh, exactly where Neres was. Uh, I couldn't have said it any better than, than he did. I, I, I think... Israel seeks as long a duration of quiet in Gaza as possible. And so the previous policy was was quiet for quiet and uh, allowing cash to get in and allowing reconstruction materials to get in and um, sort of a turning a blind eye to, to various activities so long as there was a round of conflict. That equation uh, has fundamentally shifted now. And so uh, I think they will have to take stock of uh, what exactly was the uh, was the effectiveness of their campaign to degrade Hamas's capabilities, and if if it wasn't effective, are further steps going to need? Are they going to have to take further steps to sort of enhance and stretch out uh, a period of calm? I, I think from yeah you know, from Hamas's standpoint, yeah, I completely agree with Neri. It's too soon to see if if the reasons with which they launched this round of conflict uh, to seek sort of uh, a greater political uh, standing in the Palestinian arena, it's too early to see if if that's actually going to pay dividends for them. I think a lot of that will depend on uh, how the PA and Fatah uh, respond to it. I think a lot of it will depend on uh, just what quality of life looks like in Gaza in terms of uh, not only humanitarian aid, but reconstruction materials that go into Gaza. Are there conditions on those materials that go in so that uh, so the international donors can avoid inadvertently helping Hamas resupply and rearm? If those conditions are in place, then that hampers uh, uh, Gaza's ability to, to um, 
to sort of reconstruct and improve the quality of life, they may ultimately end up taking a hit from this um, in the long run. So I do think it's just too early to see uh, and too early to tell what the overall political repercussions will be for Hamas. But certainly I would say in the near term, I think both sides are able to spin this as a victory in uh, in large part exactly uh, to what Neri said, that they were fighting sort of two different conflicts. Hmm. And let me, let me just uh, quickly add to what Grant said. Uh, it's interesting, at least from my point of view, that this round was actually very different than previous rounds, uh, because in previous rounds, Hamas really escalated uh, in order to, for lack of a better term, to improve the conditions inside Gaza itself. Uh, so it used to fire rockets, like Grant said, you know, these kind of rules of the game, this the signaling and messaging uh, in order to get Israel's attention and to kind of try to push it forward uh, in terms of the overall talks and, and arrangement around Gaza and, and reconstruction and, um, you know, improving access and movement uh, in, into and out of Gaza. Uh, so this that was previous rounds. This round, as we mentioned, was very different. Uh, it, was, it was more political uh, and less, uh, let's say, economic in terms of the conditions inside Gaza. So I'm curious to see whether, uh, you know, Hamas might have won the war but lost the battle, uh, so to speak, that, you know, it might have improved its political standing outside of Gaza at least, uh, but it might have reversed its overall uh, ability to improve conditions inside Gaza, uh, given what Grant laid out, you know, more restrictions on on uh, material going into Gaza, a more stringent international inspection mechanism, um, really a, a shift perhaps in, in Israeli strategy vis-a-vis Gaza, where they saw the old policy actually uh, not working as well as they had liked. Uh, there was no quiet for, for the quiet, and Hamas was just building up its forces uh, uh, unmolested. So uh, it remains to be seen also where Israel ends up on, on this uh, on this side, but that also I think will, will require... Uh, a new or, or stable government on the Israeli end to actually figure out uh, how to move forward with Gaza. Well, and I think I'm hearing from from both of you that uh, two areas in which future developments could help determine whether this conflict is uh, repeated anytime soon are the position and the response of Fatah in the West Bank to the recent crisis in Gaza, as well as the state and pace of Gaza's reconstruction and even just broader economic development. So for the benefit of American policymakers and uh, and, and honestly, voters, what what are, if any, good options that Washington has for American policy to encourage developments in a an, an anti-escalatory direction uh, between Hamas and Gaza and the Israeli government. Yeah, it's, uh, that's the million-dollar question right now. I think uh, I think everyone in 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 DC and um, and and certainly at the uh, at the institute, we're all thinking a lot about ways in which we can alleviate the suffering of of everyday Gazans um, while avoiding Hamas's rearmament. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think, uh, if forced to choose between the people of Gaza and replenishing its rocket, uh, supplies, Hamas is going to choose, uh, the rockets. Uh, I, you know, so I, I think, I think there are, are sort of <laughs> several, uh, several issues we should be thinking through, at least from the policymaking standpoint. One is that, 
to Neri's point, this was the first time that Hamas launched a, a, a conflict not based on a sort of palpable ask, not based on sort of a seeking uh, uh, alleviation of uh, the conditions uh, in Gaza. This was a political move. This was a political calculation at the expense of the rival Fatah party and the Palestinian Authority uh, in the West Bank. And so uh, Rob, Rob Zadloff at the, at the Institute has written that future aid to Gaza should also be tied uh, with aid to the Palestinian Authority. And I, I think that's a really good idea. The Palestinian Authority has a ton of warts and Mahmoud Abbas has a, a number of cons to his pros list. Uh, but ultimately, what we uh, in the U.S. and I think our partners around the world want is for uh, his school of thought to endure after his reign. And uh, his school of thought is uh, pro-security coordination with uh, with the Israelis. It's generally pro-diplomacy. And, uh, and it's, it's most importantly, it's, it's, it's nonviolent or largely nonviolent in sharp contrast to what Hamas's position is. And so I think we need to make a concerted effort to, to at least try to support that school of thought, uh, to, to sort of rehabilitate, uh, the Palestinian Authority, uh, and, and rehabilitate in a way where there's also asks and reforms. Uh, they've certainly clamped down on, civil society and freedoms of expression in the West Bank in recent years. And so uh, I think there are a number of steps we can do where uh, we can try to empower or at least support uh, Abbas's school of thought, if not sort of Abbas and his cronies directly, at least his school of thought, uh, hopefully at the expense of Hamas. Because the only broader thing I would say here is that Abbas's legacy is one of an increasing divide between the senior Palestinian leadership in the West Bank and the everyday Palestinian people writ large in the West Bank. And so I, I think what we should be thinking about there are ways in which to, to make sure that, that we can support, uh, the sort of pro negotiations, pro diplomacy, pro nonviolent, uh, movement in the West Bank at the expense of Hamas and one that also is accountable to the Palestinian people, or at least, um, at least more in touch and thus more sustainable leaves less of a window for uh, Hamas to exploit it and uh, try to advance its view of Palestinian nationalism. Yeah, I'll just add, I think that was really well put by, by Grant um, in complete agreement. I think uh, the, the policy approach uh, by the U.S. And, and by the way, I think by Israel as well. Uh, I think uh, after this round, uh, there's a growing awareness, at least amongst uh, senior Israeli officials and security officers that uh, that its prior Palestinian policy writ large uh, was not delivering uh, either either calm or quiet or stability, uh, primarily vis-a-vis Gaza, but but not only, and that something needs to change. Uh, and I wrote uh, an article last week for for the Globe and Mail, uh, basically uh, arguing that Israel's Palestinian policy was in tatters, uh, precisely for the reasons Grant laid out that. Uh, it almost seemed that in recent years, Israel had been negotiating, uh, albeit indirectly, but negotiating with Hamas and essentially providing it all kinds of good, goodies and benefits uh, after rocket fire just to stay quiet. Uh, while on the other hand, you had the PA uh, in the West Bank led by Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who, who were quiet, who were upholding security coordination and overall general stability on the West Bank. And it seemed like they were just getting rolled uh, by the Israelis 
whether in the West Bank or also in Jerusalem, uh, in terms of perceived Israeli violations in Sheikh Jarrah and on the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. And so I think that equation needs to change. Uh, that equation needs to change, and you have to show tangible benefits for uh, for the security coordination and the, uh, the more peaceful approach uh, touted by Abbas, uh, to his credit. Uh, and vis-a-vis Gaza and Hamas, uh, while, again, it's a tricky issue because you don't want to... Uh, you don't want uh, Gaza to simply drown and and uh, and and essentially uh, collapse economically and in, in terms of humanitarian conditions. You need to you need to help the people of Gaza. Uh, how to do that without essentially propping up Hamas as well? Uh, and that's that's a paradox. Uh, it's not an easy question, but I think the only the only answer uh, to to your query is uh, it has to be a political approach. It has to be a political approach and. Um, I'll just end by saying that uh, when Hamas took over the Gaza Strip back in 2007 uh, and it kicked out the PA and Fatah forces from the Gaza Strip, there was an idea, uh, primarily amongst certain voices in in the international community, that, okay, uh, they may have lost Gaza, but you have to tout a West Bank first model. Uh, In other words, you, you show tangible benefits for the West Bank uh, in contrast to a Gaza Strip ruled by a bunch of terrorists, uh, precisely to, to show the benefits of, of peace um, and not war. Yeah, I, Scott, I would also just just use this as an f- opportunity to, to footstomp Neri's excellent work on uh, PA security coordination with Israel. Uh, he's written the definitive history of it uh, and and tracks it unlike anyone else. I, 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 I would just say that I think we in D.C. should not take it for granted, the security coordination that the PA conducts uh, with the with the IDF in the West Bank and through the coordination of the U.S. security coordinator there, our, our three star general. I, I, I think that's a that's a that's a feature of Abbas's uh, government, but that's not that's not a given for any future government. And so I think nurturing that and supporting that uh, is is ever important. Because Grant was so nice to tout my work, I will tout his work. Uh, Grant is the author of the definitive uh, biography of Mahmoud Abbas. Scott, uh, delete this part. We were asking us which parts to delete. Just cut this. <laughs> I I, uh, I I refuse to discourage uh, cross promotion of, uh, of of your work and scholarship. But but with that, I, I think I, I I think this may be a, a good point to uh, to draw a line in this conversation and uh, and and put a pin down because this is clearly a a topic and a set of issues that we are going to need to. Uh, keep a close eye on and revisit. I know you will in your work, and I hope that we will have you back on Middle East Policy Cast uh, before too long. We've been speaking today with Grant Rumley, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute, and Neri Zilber, Israel-based Adjunct Fellow at the Institute. You can follow Grant on Twitter at RumleyGM. That's R-U-M-L-E-Y-G-M. You can follow Neri at N-E-R-I-Z-I-L-B-E-R. Grant, Neri, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us, Scott. Great to be with you. Thank you, Scott. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Cast.